two days ago, I was given a unusual prophetic word from two members of our church who sensed that the Lord wanted to instruct me in something and, and I was told to not give any WandaVision spoilers in this message. These two members of the church are serious, <laughs> godly people and felt like they heard from the Lord. My initial response was going to be, don't touch the Lord's anointed. And then I thought, well, these two individuals do love the Lord, and so there may be something to it. So I am going to submit to the prophetic word and not give any WandaVision spoilers. But if you have not watched the episode, by next Sunday, I cannot be responsible for what the Spirit does in me through the teaching of the Word of God. I just want to make sure you know. All right, we are going to continue in our Romans review. We are still in chapter 6. We ended essentially at chapter, at verse 14 last week. So we're going to pick up on verse 15 and go through the end of the chapter as usual. We're not going to hit every single thing, but we will cover quite a bit because it's, it's less of, it's less dense. There's only eight verses, but we're not going to hit all of them. But there are some things that I think we need to zoom in to pay attention to. And sometimes we may step out of this particular passage and into a different passage to help us make the point. But we're going to begin today with Romans 6, beginning in verse 15, reading through verse 23. And I quote, What then should, what then? Should we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Absolutely not. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one that you obey, either of sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness? But thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were handed over. And having been set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. I'm using a human analogy because of the weakness of your flesh for just as you offered yourself, offered the parts of yourselves as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater lawlessness, so now offer them as slaves to righteousness, which results in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free with regard to righteousness. So what fruit was produced then from the things which you are now ashamed of? The outcome of those things is death. But now, since you have been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification. The outcome is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. 
I've said throughout that identity is a fundamental theme in all of Paul's letters, but it's not any less in this particular letter. There is a lot of God inspiring men like Paul, Peter, James, John to write letters to us to remind us of our identity. And one of the reasons why I believe that to be so is because we don't always identify, we don't always feel the way the scripture describes us. This morning, I don't feel particularly like I've, I'm under grace. I don't particularly feel that I'm an obedient slave. I don't feel like sin doesn't have reign over me. I don't feel, we, we often don't feel these things. And, 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 the, and the beautiful thing about when we don't feel them is that that's the, that, that F word, feel, is not the F word that is the word we use. The F word that defines us is not feel, but faith. And often we have to have faith to believe the descriptions of who we are and how God says our lives have changed because of our faith in Jesus Christ. And sometimes I think we forget that aspect of what it means to be a Christian. We tend to think, if I believe in Jesus, then that's what it requires. And yes, believing in Jesus is fundamental. But that is the beginning of what we must believe. We have to have faith that when God says things like, we are not under law, but under grace, and we are, we are not slaves to sin, but are slaves to righteousness, when it goes against our experience, it's not because the word is, is problematic. It's because we need to, in faith, believe that what God is saying about us and to us is true, despite our many failures. So in this particular section of Romans 6, Paul begins with a similar question as he asked in Romans 1. And both of these questions, they center around rightly understanding the purpose of grace. What is the purpose of grace in the life of a believer? If we're no longer under the law, which is the Mosaic, the Ten Commandments. When, I think of, when you think of law for the purposes of the rest of this message, just think Ten Commandments. We're not under the law and that we have to obey those perfectly. We're under grace. But what is the purpose of grace? How does it play out in our day-to-day -day lives? How does grace play out in our thinking and in our action? Grace must be an ideology before it can become our functionality. The way we understand grace, we must think rightly to live rightly or we'll mess it up. You've heard me say before, grace is not so amazing that we can just do whatever we want, sin however we want, and expect to be forgiven. It's not. It doesn't mean we don't sin. It just means we're not going to live a life of pursuing sin and expect to hear, well done, thy good and faithful servant at the end. We must, by faith, believe the descriptions that God gives us when they're not our experience. And so Paul sets the stage for this portion of the letter by asking 
Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? So he's using a rhetorical device where he, he's asking and answering a potential question that people may have based on what they're hearing him say about the freedoms that we have in Jesus Christ. He's addressing a misunderstanding in hopes to steer people away from thinking that grace promotes the freedom to sin instead of the freedom from sin. You see, he even says later on in the passage, when you were, as a matter of fact, he says this, we're going to skip to this in just a second. He says in verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free with regard to righteousness. It means when we were just non-Christians and sinning effortlessly, he says we were free to the demands of righteousness. He says you were free. So the question and what he's getting at and what he's contrasting is two kinds of freedom. Freedom to sin and freedom from sin. And so he's asking a question that people who think, oh, grace is freedom to sin. If grace means if the law comes and multiplies sin and now grace has come in Jesus Christ and he's forgiving sin, then I can sin and be forgiven. That's the logical or illogical conclusion that he's speaking to. It's that dichotomy of law versus grace, where in the law, you, law the Mosaic law, it's a, it's a system of laws, civil statutes, and priestly ordinances that had to be obeyed perfectly in order to say you keep the law. And then the other corner, you have grace, which is a system of obtaining righteousness as a free gift through trusting in Jesus, which is the opposite of earning it by perfect obedience to the law. So he's contrasting these two arguments to make sure that if anyone has this question, since God has already declared us righteous because of Jesus's obedience, doesn't it mean that we can sin more and be forgiven? And his answer is, and our answer should be, absolutely not. That is an unbiblical ideology. Now, it doesn't mean that we're not forgiven when we sin. That's not what Paul's referring to. What he's saying is, should my mindset be that because grace forgives sin, I'm free to commit sin and do it with the expectation of being forgiven. And he's saying, absolutely not. That's an unbiblical ideology. That's called what some people have called it cheap grace. Some have called it taking advantage of grace. I think scripture in Hebrews calls it trampling the son of God underfoot. That is not the way we understand grace and apply it. Do we sin? Sure. That's why Jesus came, because we can't obey the law perfectly. So he did. But we don't all of a sudden say, well, shoot, now that he's done that, this part of time, ooh, this part. Some of y'all don't know about that. We are not free now to say, hey, I'm forgiven. It's God's job to forgive. You see, grace doesn't lower the standard of holiness. It, still, it just forgives us for not meeting it. 
It's an unbiblical ideology to think, oh, man, I can sin because God is purposed to forgive because of Jesus Christ. Here's one thing we have to know, have to always remember. We're talking about God. We're talking about God. You're not talking about me, your pastor, or Mike, or your D group, or your spouse, or your children. We're talking about God, who really knows if you're really serious about obedience. You can fool Pastor Kurt, Pastor Mike. I can fool you, but you can't fool God. We have to remember who is the final evaluator. And God knows if our sin is because we think we're allowed to do it or if we sin because we're struggling to fight it. He knows the reality of that. So you can fool all of us. I can fool you and maybe Maybe not. The Lord reveals. I did not expect to hear all that after Robbie Zacharias died. I'm making no pronouncement about his eternal destination, but the, the facts are clear. He had a lot of people deceived. And the Lord revealed it. No one would have thought that at all had that not come out. We'd have thought he was up in heaven chilling. And maybe he is. I'm hard pressed to agree with that at this point, though. We got to remember who we're talking about here. This understanding of, of grace is, is God's going to evaluate the reality of it. He knows if you really believe that you can just sin and it's okay, or you can deceive us and think that just, you know, and then like somehow that's, I'm not the standard. I'm just here to help remind you of it. Now, I want to skip verse 16 for a second because Paul makes a statement in verse 17. He says, but thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, just that phrase, you used to be slaves of sin. How can God make that claim? That people, them, us, we used to be slaves of sin when in fact we still sin. How does God make a claim like that? Remember, these are God's words. God speaking through Paul is saying, even though you, Christian, you, believer, you still sin, you used to be a slave of sin, but you're not anymore. How does he make that claim? This is an identity claim. How does he say that about people who still sin? How does he say that? How do you stand confidently knowing you gave in to pornography last night? How do you stand confidently knowing you got in an argument with your spouse last night? I got in a conflict with my wife last night and sinned against her. How do I stand here today and preach and feel, because I don't feel this truth. How do you stand there knowing that you judge and are angry at people, or bitter at people, or you're afraid of circumstances? How do you know that? Don't you feel like a slave of sin? 
Well, here's what he says in verse 16, backing up a verse. He says this in verse 16. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of that one you obey, either sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness. He uses the word, if you offer yourselves, if you offer yourselves. So what does he mean by that? Well, he's, he's saying that people have offered themselves to obedience leading to righteousness. Well, how do we do that? And this is the powerful truth and I think a misunderstood reality about what it means to be a Christian and what it means to repent, the, even the actual word repent. What he's saying is when you believed in Jesus Christ, you offered yourself to follow Jesus. You repented in that moment. And this is an important reality. And this may seem like semantics, what I'm about to say, but I don't believe it's semantics. I think words actually matter. You see, the biblical call is repent and believe the gospel. And once you repent, once you change your mind about Jesus and choose to follow Jesus, from God's perspective, you've offered yourself to being a slave of righteousness. And therefore, you start to live according to that new identity, that faith. You've repented. There is a reason why in the New Testament, the word repent is not used towards Christians after they follow Jesus Christ. In fact, you will only find the word repent in the letters to the seven churches in Revelation speaking from Jesus directly. Repentance, you know, uh, if you're reformed, a lot of people have said, Martin Luther said the Christian life is a life of repentance, and I, I agree on one level. But, but what happens is when you, when you think of the word repent, repent is given to people as an evangelistic call to change your mind and follow Jesus. Once you do that, that language is no longer used to describe you because repent is identity language. It's speaking to people who have yet to follow Jesus. They haven't offered themselves to Jesus. This is why you won't find in the New Testament, even when Christians are going crazy, like in the book of Corinthians, you won't find the word repent. You're not repenting. You won't find that word. You find different language in the New Testament because when you repent and you offer yourself to Jesus, that is the moment that you accept him as your Lord and Savior. Proof of this will be found in Acts chapter 2. Picking up, so the Holy Spirit comes and everyone's surrounding Peter as he's preaching the gospel using the book of Joel. And at the end of his sermon, or at the end of his gospel proclamation, verse 37 tells us this. When they, the crowd, heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
for the promises for you and for your children and, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. So here's a question we have to ask. Did the, apostles, did the apostles baptize anyone that they didn't think repented? Repent and be baptized was one and the same thing to them. Did they baptize anyone that they think didn't repent? That's one question. Here's the second question. If they're standing there hearing this message and they get baptized because they believe the message, the apostles baptized them, these people have yet to renounce any sin. There are people in this crowd that may be living with someone that's not their spouse. They've yet to end that relationship. They've yet to do any actual obedience yet because repentance, to repent was to believe in Jesus and commit to following him. And they, they were baptized in that moment. It wasn't like they said, all right, if you believe, go home and do all this stuff and we'll be back here in a couple of months to baptize those who are showing repentance. No, repent and to offer yourself to a slave of righteousness started with, we believe this gospel message. And we're going to be baptized to show outward expression of what is happening inward in my life. Another example, Acts 16. Beginning in verse 14, says this. A God-fearing woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, was listening. The Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. After she and her household were baptized, she urged us, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So here a woman is hearing the gospel for the first time, possibly. The Lord opened up her heart to believe and then she was baptized. And that gospel was shared with her household. Everyone was baptized. And then she said, if you consider me a believer, you consider me a believer, stay with me. And they did. She offered herself to be a slave of righteousness because she changed her mind of what it meant to believe in Jesus Christ. And that alone was worthy of repentance. It was a baptized right away. The reason why I'm bringing this up because some of us who struggle with sin can be confused and thinking, man, this doesn't describe me. We, I haven't, I'm, I'm, you know, you might even say I haven't repented. In the family of churches we used to come from, you would often be told you're not repenting. You haven't repented of this. And it would discourage people because repentance is used towards people who are not Christian. So if I'm thinking I haven't repented, then the logical connection is am I a believer? But the Bible doesn't say that once you've offered yourself to Jesus and you've repented. Here's the language the Bible says to people who are actual Christians who struggle with sin. Here's the language. Galatians 5, 13. For you were called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But serve one another through love. It's not saying you haven't repented when you sin. It's don't use your freedom. That's identity language. You've repented. You've offered yourself to God. Now take that freedom and use it as righteousness. Ephesians 4, 
Listen to what it says, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to repent. No, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you have received. That's identity language. With all humility with, and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Ephesians 4, 25. Therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor. You see the language? Put this away. Walk in a manner worthy. You know why? Because you repented. You've offered yourself to follow Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean you don't sin, but now we have to learn how to put these things away. How do we walk in a manner worthy? Not have we repented or not. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says this, Therefore, be imitators of God. Listen to that language, identity language. Be an imitator of God. As what? Dearly loved children. And walk in love as Christ has also loved and gave himself up for us. Colossians 3, verses 2 through 5. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. I'm sorry, I read the wrong verse. It's right beside each other. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. You see, from the New Testament, from the Bible's perspective, once we believe in Jesus, we've offered ourselves to now be a slave of righteousness, and now we're by faith learning how to do that. And our failures, our sins, are not that we haven't repented. It's that we're learning how to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which we have received. Second Peter 1, 9, now you don't have the verse, but you've heard me say it a ton. It says, if you are not growing in these qualities, you are so nearsighted that you have forgotten that you have been cleansed from your former sins. Peter says, if you're not growing in the qualities I listed in verses 5 through 7 in 2 Peter 1, the problem is that you haven't repented. The problem is that you haven't believed that you've repented. That you don't believe, you've forgotten that you've been cleansed of your former sins. Brother, this, brothers and sisters, there's freedom in this. Don't look at your sinfulness as the opposite of what you profess to believe, but as the process in which you're learning how to put away these things. Put these things to death. Don't let the enemy fool you. Don't let anybody fool you. Our struggle is real. But the grace has been multiplied for us. Now, some of you may think, well, I still use the word repentance. Fine, do it. But it's not a matter of semantics to me. Words matter. I rarely, I only use the word repent to help people understand what I'm getting at. But I don't like that language because I think it denotes, it's, it's, it's evangelistic. It's non-Christian language. When I talk to people, I'm talking to people that have repented, that are, that are slaves of righteousness and are learning how to do the work. Back to verse 17, he also adds another layer to this. He says this, but thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were handed over. Obeyed from the heart. And listen, you used to be slaves of sin. That's just, it's, it's crazy language. You've obeyed from the heart. 
What does he mean? Do you know this phrase, obeyed from the heart? This is the only time this phrase is used in all of Scripture. He says, you've obeyed from the heart. The only time it's used in all of Scripture. It's an intentional phrase to mean you have a genuine love for Jesus and you're motivated by a love for Jesus. Your motive for obedience is you want to honor the Lord. So you make decisions to do that. You obeyed from the heart. So how do you know? How do you know if this is you? How can you tell? A lot of people wonder, like, how do I know? How do you know if this is you? There's, sometimes we're always searching for assurance. How do I know I've obeyed from the heart? How do I know that, um, that I've offered myself to Jesus? What's the measuring for me? There's plenty. There's plenty. Do you love other believers? That's clear in 1 John. But you know what else 1 John says? 1 John says this in, in, in chapter 5. Listen to what he says here. For this is what the love of God is, to keep his commands, okay? But here's the catcher. And his commands are not a burden. Because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world. This is what he says. This is the victory that has conquered the world. Our faith. Let me read this again. 1 John 5. Memorize these two verses. For this is what the love of God is. Love for God. I'm sorry. The love for God is what? To keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. They're not burden. Not a burden. Because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. We might have to do a sermon on this one, Mac, just these two verses. He says, and his commands are not a burden. What is a burden? Something heavy, something weighty. What does it mean to be burdensome? Some of your translations say burdensome. It means oppressive. It's oppressive. Oppressive is when something or someone is preventing you from being who you are and doing what you want to do. They're oppressing you, like slavery and Jim Crow and other things. Racism, domestic violence. This is what oppression feels like. It's a, it's a burden. It's, it's stopping you from being what you want to do. So here's the question. Are the commands of God a burden to you? I'm not saying is it difficult sometimes to apply them, but are they a burden to you? Are they oppressing you from doing what you want to do? When you think about having to honor the Lord, is reading, praying, resisting sin, is that a burden to you? If it is, I think you should suspect your faith. I think you should, biblically speaking. I'm not going to soften it up to make people feel like, if it's a burden to obey God, where it's just a challenge, like, man. You know, one of the things about having kids is kids are often forced to go to church. So you really sometimes can't tell if they really believe until it's their own decision. Because right now, as with me and my house, we're going to worship the Lord. But when they're 18, 19, 20, 21, it's like, hey, listen. I may live in your house, but you, you get a, what, what, what do you believe? What do you believe? 
And we hear droves and droves. I read these Pew Research reports about about millennials walking away from the faith in droves and 70% of those or 80% of those people grew up in a Christian home. And when you hear some of their stories, they just, it was my parents' faith. It, it doesn't work. It, just, it's, it's a, it's, 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 it was oppressing them. They, they really wanted to do something else, but they had to go here. Listen, you don't have to glorify God if you don't want to. You don't have to read. You don't have to pray. You don't have to resist any sin if you don't want to. But we will stand before God and he'll ask us and, and not even ask us. He'll tell us what we did and didn't do. You, no one's forcing you to do anything. But when we have offered ourselves to Jesus, we want to obey him. And we actually struggle when we don't. See, if the commands are burdensome, then you might not be a believer. But if you are fighting to honor the Lord, now when I say burden, I'm not talking about are some things tough to resist. We're talking about the fact that you have to do it you hate because it's not who you are. You know, I firmly believe that God is preparing us for eternity, that we're not learning how, like you just don't go to eternity and all of a sudden, everything changes. If you didn't love God here, you will not love God there. It's not like you can just do whatever and live here and live for the world and then die. And you want to be in the presence of God. You ain't want to be in the presence of a man. This is why First Timothy 4 or, 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 or says this when he says, look, Second Timothy 4, when he says, look, the Lord has a crown of life for me because I finished the race. And he says, not only for me, but to all who loved his appearing. You know why? Because if you don't love that Jesus came now, you ain't going to love to be where Jesus is later. For many of you, the commands are not burdensome. Sure, we struggle and fight and we got issues we got to deal with, but they're not burdensome. It's not like you're like, oh, man, I got to obey the Lord. Hey. You know, it's not like that. You know how when you tell your kids, man, clean up, you know, put the fortnight away. Like, oh, man. At least my kids be like that. Like, <laughs> hey. You know why? Because it's burdensome to do that. They don't want to do that. If that's not where you're at as a believer, then don't let your struggle with sin deceive you into thinking that you haven't repented and offered yourself to righteousness. What you are doing is learning how to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you have received. And everyone's growth is different. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. It, it matters that you remain one. This is why he can use language like this. This is why he can say in verse 18 that you've been set free from sin. And you're like, what are you talking about? This is set free from sin. Man, I just got in an argument last night. And with sin, and I ain't I'm set free from what? If I was set free from sin, I wouldn't have said nothing. Let the gospel, let the words of truth renew your mind. It says we've been set free from sin, not the, not the presence of sin, but the power of it. Which means we can actually resist and we have a desire to resist because the commands are not burdensome. They're not. We, we want to we obey his commands, and they're not a burden to me. God's commands are not a burden to me. 
I'm grateful for them. I enjoy a lot of them. There, are there some that are difficult? Yeah, sure. But that's different than, man, I ain't trying to do this. You put a plate of lima beans and peas in front of me, ah, oh, I ain't going to want to eat that. And I ain't going to eat that because I'm grown. But you mix it with some rice and peas, a little chicken and some shrimp or something, maybe some scallops, Cleveland, I might go ahead and do something. I'll pluck the lima beans out. Those are from Satan. But peas, nah, they're from Satan. Just like crispy bacon, undercooked, baby. 100% the Lord. The Lord got a place of undercooked bacon in heaven for those of us who truly believe. Listen, we've been set free. We've become slaves of righteousness, not because we haven't sinned, but because we've repented, we've offered ourselves to this reality. So he says, look, you've been set free. Listen, this is, this is, this is what we must believe by faith because it's not our experience by sight. It's not. He goes on verse 19. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. I want to focus on one verse for the rest of this sermon. But I want to read a couple of these verses. Verse 19, he says, I am using a human analogy because of the weakness of your flesh. flesh. For just as you offer the parts of yourselves as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater lawlessness, now offer them as slaves to righteousness, which results in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free with regard to righteousness. So what fruit was produced then from the things you were now ashamed of? The outcome of those things is death. I want to focus on, on, on verse 21 for the remainder of the sermon. We may just read the last couple of verses, but I really want to focus on verse 21 because 19 and 20, he's just explaining that he's using a human analogy so that we can understand exactly what he means. So he's saying, listen, if you've offered just, when you were, basically, when you were a non-Christian, you enjoyed it. You partied, you got high, drunk, had sex, you did whatever you did. You was committed to it. I remember when TGIF, thank God, I remember when Fridays was like, man, we getting paid, we going out, we getting twisted, it was all, we were planning, we made, we were planning to sin, making reservations to commit sin. He's saying, look, when you used to do that, what was the fruit? We used to plan, so what he's saying is, listen, the way you used to plan to sin when you weren't a Christian, plan to obey because you are a Christian. The same vigor in which you couldn't wait to get, get some weed or get some drugs or get drunk or have sex or do whatever it is you do, the way you used to look forward to that, look forward to not doing that because you believe. Give the same attention like you used to when you were making reservations to sin. Give the same attention to making reservations to resist that sin. Because you've been, you've offered yourself. The commands aren't a burden. You're no longer, you used to be slaves of sin. That's what he's getting at. But he asked this question in verse 21. What was the fruit? So what fruit was produced from the things you were now ashamed of? This question 
I believe, is one of the greatest strategies in Scripture to help us fight sin. Because it addresses two sides of the same coin. It addresses those of us who remember what sin was like to be a non-Christian, but it also has something for people who that's not their life. They don't remember a time they grew up in the church. They don't have a real stark difference. They just have always grown up in this. Lord willing, I hope that's my children's testimony. I don't want them to have a testimony like mine, like I ran the streets, got into guns and drugs, I got locked up, I was in prison, I did all this stuff, I had to go to court. I don't want my kids to say that. I want my kids to be like, man, I just grew up in the church, I'm a pastor's kid, and at some point, we just always were in the church, and I just believe. I want them to have a good old-fashioned, biblical, boring testimony. I don't want them to have no excitement in their testimony. <laughs> you know what I'm saying, Cleveland? I don't want them to have that south side of Chicago. That, I don't want that Cabrini Green's testimony, huh, Cleveland? We don't want none of that. You don't want no problems. Well, no problems with me. We don't want none of that. None of it. I want my kids to be like, I don't even know when. I just, it just happened, and I'm just a believer. How you became saved is way different than are you saved. So this question helps us address both of those things. It gives us a strategy, and it helps us go on the offense instead of the defense. Don't you, don't you, listen, most of Christianity is like defense, and I get it. It's all defensive. You give in to sin, and then now after the fact, you absolutely forgive it. What about the preemptive? When do we go on offense? Why are we always like, oh, man, I failed again. Here we go. Now I got to work myself back up. I think God doesn't like me. God's tired of me. The enemy's all in my ear. How do we go on offense? Well, here's the question. This question helps us. So let me start with those of us who remember what it's like to not be a Christian. Let me start from those of us who remember when we had a conversion experience. We remember our life B.C., before Christ. Well, this question helps us. Because what he's doing, he's asking them and us to look back and consider what was the fruit. And fruit are just results or consequences. What was the outcome of our life when we were living in rebellion against God? So I'll start. I got shot at. I sold crack cocaine. I was surrounded around people who had murdered other people and celebrated it. I got into a shootout, a broad day shootout. One of my closest friends got shot and dropped right in front of me. I rushed him to the hospital only to be apprehended by police. And then an investigation happened and I'm facing 43 years in prison for shooting at people. Fun times. It destroyed, it broke my, I had a difficult relationship with my mom because of my sinfulness. And then I carry into being a Christian some of those same habits and patterns of that old gangster that still is there, but I have to fight to not let him become normative. What was the fruit of getting high and being paranoid that I might, that I'm going to get this drug deal and it might be a setup? Driving to a place 45 minutes early and stashing drugs, crack cocaine in certain locations and then going back to my car so that police, so if they pulled up, I could, no one saw me put the drugs there. 
So when people would come to my car, they'd be like, hey, you got that? Like, I don't know what you're talking about. I saw somebody drop something over there. They didn't see me do it. All that planning and, and being afraid of the consequences and, and being, in, being locked up in a room full of nothing but criminals and, not, and wondering when you get on the phone and somebody's going to check you and try to get you off the phone and now you've got to defend yourself and you get into a fight and you turn having to do a couple of months into a couple of years. Putting a soap, a bar of soap in your sock so you can use it as a weapon or sharpening your toothbrush so that you can use it as a weapon or peeing on a pencil in case you have to fight and stab someone in a gang war. That was the fruit of my rebellion. What was yours? What are the things that you are now ashamed of? The things that I used to laugh at and enjoy that I did, I now shake my head at like, wow, I can't believe I used to do that. Ashamed of that. And you know what? There's still fruit in my life of that now. By God's grace, most of that stuff is gone. But some of the pride and the attitudes, those things persist. When I use these illustrations that are violent, it's because I came from that. It's not because I'm trying to just make you laugh, and although I'm glad some of you laugh, it's funny to me now too, but it wasn't funny then. Those are things that me and Mike had walked through. We've been around that. What was the fruit of that? That stuff almost took my life and it took the lives of other people that I knew. Murder dudes. Bay getting murdered at Subway. Right across the street. We over there getting high. We hit gunshots and not even until we found out it was Bay they got murdered. People doing life in prison. That was the fruit of that. Now, my life is a little bit more sensationalized than most, and sensationalized in air quotes, because it's not. It's just our, our, our culture loves violence, and so we, we sensationalize things that are violent. So you don't have my story, and you don't have to, but what is the fruit of the things that you were ashamed of, the things that you're now ashamed of, that you used to be? Why go back to that? That's the point he's asking. Why go back to that? What was the outcome? That stuff almost took my life. I was facing 43 years in prison in 1997. If I had done even 20 years of that, I would have gotten out in 2017. I would have been almost institutionalized. I wouldn't be your pastor. I wouldn't have any of the relationships I have with you. I wouldn't even know what kind of dude I would be if I had just done even 20 of those years. How merciful was the Lord? Because for the last 13, I've been sitting right here. I wouldn't have my wife, my children. I wouldn't have nothing. And for all the challenges that I have in my life sometimes, and sometimes the being stung and the difficulties of that, none of that compares to that. Off the old, nothing compares to you. Whatever, I forgot who sang that song. But this don't compare to that. I can handle this, even though I struggle sometimes. I can handle this because I was, I'm not going back to that. What's the fruit in your life that you are now ashamed of? Why do those things? So that's one side of the coin, but it also speaks to us as believers, whether you have a testimony like that or not. 
This is how we use it on the offensive. When we're tempted, we ask the same question. What's the fruit that's going to come if I give in to this? What fruit is going to come out of it? What fruit comes out of? How do you feel? How many of you watch pornography, give in, and then can't wait to go to church the next morning? You feel terrible. How many of you lie because you're afraid of the consequences? You feel terrible. You don't, you don't feel great about yourself. Get into a screaming match with someone. You feel terrible afterwards. What's the fruit that's going to come from this if I give in to this? That's how we need to go on the offensive. I need to think about, because we know, especially if there are patterns and habits that we know we've already given into, we know what that feels like. What's the pain that comes after the pleasure? Or to use the actual language of the passage, what's the death that I give into? So the outcome of those things is death, verse 21 tells us. What was the fruit produced from the things that you were now ashamed of? The outcome of those things is death. So what's the death that I'm going to experience after I give in to this? Now, death is not, there's a couple ways to die in the Bible. One, there's physical death. Two, there's the second death, which Revelation 20 tells us. You look at Revelation 20, verses 14 and 15. This is where God says, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Everyone is not going to die twice, but many are. Another way to die, though, is to die to the confidence that you have in the Lord. And you slowly lose that. So here's some of the ways that we die when we give in to temptation that we're now ashamed of. Here's the death, the fruit of it. Condemnation. Frustration. A lack of confidence in the Lord. Feel hypocritical. You withdraw from God and community. Who wants to go to D group when you're just struggling with sin? Who wants to read the Bible? The last thing you want to read is a book that's going to tell you what you're doing is wrong. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? Cleveland is, is, is killing it in here right now. Walking away from the faith. Fill in the blank. A lack of confidence in who you are in the Lord is a subtle death that leads to a lot of different things. And that's the fruit that comes out of giving in to sin. 
And so this question can help us be like, you know what? I know how I'm going to feel if I do this. I use this question often because I just, I know how I'm going to feel. This question is a preemptive strategy and it's good for in the moment of temptation. So when we talked about consider, justify, agree, and then act as sort of a paradigm for how we go from temptation to sin, when we're asked to consider, here's where you fight justifying. Here's where you fight justifying giving in to that sin. Instead of thinking, man, that's been a hard day. I'm tired of fighting. I'm tired of resisting. I've been doing good in this area for a while. How many of us have justified giving in the temptation because we've been doing good for a while? It's almost like, shoot, I've earned me a little sin vacation because I've been doing all right in it. It's been a few weeks since I watched porn. Let me go ahead and give, give it in real quick. It's been a few weeks since I've done this or, having, or, or been, you know, whatever, had these thoughts or, or gave in to this attitude. I've been fighting it and, or it's too hard. How do we fight the justification part? By using this question. What's the fruit that's going to come out of it? I'm going to be ashamed of this. What's going to come out of it? After the pleasure, what comes out of it? And when I say sin is pleasurable, I know someone asked a question last week. When I say that, I don't mean that sin is like biting chocolate. Like, hmm, when I talk about being pleasurable, I just mean there's satisfaction in it. There's satisfaction at being offended at someone and thinking negative thoughts about them or even telling them things about them. So there's a certain satisfaction. It's not pleasure like endorphins. It's pleasure like it's, there's a, sat a certain satisfaction I get. It's a satisfaction that comes with judging other people because you think they're judging you. So how does this work? Let's do a quick case study, all right? Let's go to Hebrews chapter 11. Let's do a brief case study to show you how this can work, practically speaking. Let's get practical, and we'll close with this. Let's look at Hebrews 11, verses 24 to 26. Let's look at this strategy. Let's be preemptive. Let's see how this works out. All right, reading the passage, I'm going to read verses 24 and 25 right now. By faith... Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. Now, we've heard verse 25 before. I think I even said it last week, right? So that, that one you're familiar with. So let's, 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 let's try to apply this paradigm using this, these brief verses. Now, think about this for a second. Even though resisting sin is a gift. That's Acts 3. Acts 3, Peter says in Acts 3, 26, so God wants to bless you. But hold on, no, I actually want to read, I want to read the verse. You don't have it up there, and I'm sorry, you guys are spoiled. We always put the verses up there. Acts 3, verse 26. I think this is one of the craziest verses in the Bible. Listen to this. It says this, Acts 3, 26. Here's what Peter says. God raised up his servant, talking about Jesus, and sent him to you first 
to bless you by turning each one of you away from your evil ways. So that's what he says. God raised up his servant and sent you, sent him to you first to bless you by turning each of you from your evil ways. Okay, think about the language of that. Because resisting sin does not feel like a blessing. When you're struggling to sin, it doesn't feel like a blessing. When you're struggling with anger or bitterness or lust or whatever, or fear, it doesn't feel like a blessing as you're trying to resist it. It feels like suffering. Because a lot of it is we're learning how to walk in a manner worthy of the calling we've received. We're learning how to resist the things that we once were okay with doing. And so here's Moses. You know, it says that, it says that he, he chose to suffer with the people of God. Now, the suffering was both location-based and identity-based. But we're using this as an analogy to help us understand. So even though sin, resisting sin is a gift as he said, to bless you by turning you away. In experience, it feels like suffering. Ask anyone who struggles with anxiety. Does resisting anxiety feel like a blessing? <laughs> Can't nobody else hear you laugh, brother, but I can. It doesn't feel like a blessing. But from God's perspective, it's a blessing. To us and to people who struggle with anxiety, it feels like suffering. It feels like suffering. Even though resisting sin is a gift, an experience, it feels like suffering because denying ourselves something that we want or feel like is a part of us or that we feel like we've earned is a part of the suffering that every Christian goes so now here's verse 26. This is where verse 26 is the application of the question of verse Romans 6.21. Here's the question of Romans 6.21 again. So what fruit was produced then from the things you were now ashamed of? The outcome is death. Now let's read verse 26 to see that this is the application of that. Here's what it says. For he considered the reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt since he was looking ahead to the reward. These verses are telling us something about Moses, but to be fully, to fully understand the power of these verses, we have to understand all the challenges. I mean, we know the story of Moses. His life was not easy. He has significant challenges, setbacks, and failures. This dude couldn't even go to the promised land. I mean, I don't know how, what, what, if, if, I'm, if I'm understanding correctly, how they used to dress back then. Do you know how hard it is to walk up a mountain in some sandals and some flip-flops? You walk into the top of a mountain and then imagine walking down carrying two stone tablets. Just walking up the mountain to be with Jesus is tough on your feet. Slipping, having to get yourself. It wasn't like God just had them float up on some division, just fly up as a... That alone was something, but then think about all the dynamics when you read the, the, the book of the, the first five books, Exodus, and more Exodus and Deuteronomy, as you see it. Leviticus is more about laws and stuff like that. And Numbers is, 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 a, is a transition from the first generation of people 
who are not going to the promised land, and then the translation, the transition to those who are going. So half, the second half of Numbers is addressing those who are going to the promised land, and then Deuteronomy. Exodus, up through the half, first half of Numbers, is speaking to those who are not going to make it because of their hard-heartedness. Moses had difficulty, yet he chose to suffer. And why? Two words, looking ahead. Look at verse 26 again in Hebrews 11. For he considered reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Why? Since he was looking ahead to the reward. Now, when we read the scriptures, we don't know that about Moses. Now, I could be wrong, but I don't remember any verses where Moses states, I'm looking ahead towards another reward. I remember Moses being like, Lord, this is stiff-necked people, man. I remember Moses getting mad and striking a rock and God saying, because you've done that, you can't go to the promised land. But this tells us he was looking ahead. That's the strategy. And many of us, and me included, we fail to consistently do this when we're tempted. Look ahead. What's the fruit that's going to come out of this if I give in? Let me look ahead for a second. I may experience some form of satisfaction, but I'm going to feel miserable afterwards. And then one more eschatological looking ahead at end times is I need to look ahead to the reward that's coming in Christ and be willing to give up this pleasure here that I can experience for a pleasure there that I will experience. It's an immediate versus the expectation. How am I going to feel after I give in to this temptation? Only people who have obeyed from the heart can do this. Only people who have offered themselves to Jesus, whom God says are now slaves of righteousness, who the commands are not a burden. Those are the people that can do this. It's a tale of two pleasures, the pleasure I get from pleasing me right now or the pleasure I get in pleasing God that will be rewarded later. Last week's message, I, I said this. Are you, it was a question I asked. What weapons are you using? Are you fighting the sin in you or the sun in you? Today, I could easily ask, are the commands burdensome? to you. But I think we need to make sure we're asking ourselves, D-group leaders, if you have these kinds of conversations in your D-group, don't just, don't just ask how people are doing. Ask people, how are you fighting? How are you persevering? How are you fighting for joy, fighting for truth, resisting? Don't just ask how you're doing. Ask, how are you fighting? How are you resisting? How are you looking ahead? We need to talk about that more because that doesn't happen as much as it should. We all can talk about how we feel. And there's value in that, right? That's how we feel. But what about how are you resisting? How are you fighting based on how you feel? How are you looking ahead? We need to start thinking like that because then we can really serve one another. 
Telling me how you feel may be helpful to pray for you, but telling me how you're looking ahead, I might be able to imitate that too. We need to move beyond just praying for one another. Don't just ask how you're doing, ask how you're fighting. How you're looking ahead. When I do this, man, it's beneficial to me. When I forget, I, it, it has a toll. We need to be offensive. Take the offense against our sinfulness, the tendency to sin. Take the offense and think about how is this going to affect me later? What's the fruit that's going to come out of this? Okay, there will be, there'll be some satisfaction. I get that. That's the draw. The draw is the, the, the immediate satisfaction. But what's the fruit that's going to come out of that? Condemnation? A lack of confidence in my identity in Christ? A withdrawal from Christian community, from God himself? Verse 22 in closing. But now since you have been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit which results in sanctification, and the outcome is eternal life. There's fruit. God says you have your fruit. It's sanctification. It's, it's, you know what sanctification means? Walking in a manner worthy of the calling you've received, putting to death that which is earth in you, setting your mind on things above, walking in the Spirit, these are all statements of what sanctification is, being made to be like Jesus. Why? He's preparing us because if God doesn't prepare us to be like Jesus, there's no way we can be with Jesus. That's Hebrews 12, 14. Pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Heaven is just not about like, oh, when I get there, I'm just going to be transformed and changed. Heaven, it will be the ending, the fully, the, heaven will be the experience of transformation fulfilled because we were living it out here. That's what's happening here. This is what all this resisting sin is about. God is preparing us to be in his presence. And if we don't, if we don't want to be in his presence now, death ain't going to change that. <laughs> it ain't like you're going to die and be like, Jesus. You're going to be like, man, what this, I don't even, dang, all this singing and stuff? I don't like this type of music. It doesn't work like that. Death doesn't just transform you into this godly person. No, death transforms you into what you were living in this life. It prepares us. This is why the, the scriptures say, when we see him what? We're going to be like him. Because we're being transformed now. That's why we're to be imitators of God. That's why the language is important. That's why I don't like using the word repent to people who have repented. Because you're being transformed. And we're learning how to walk in a manner worthy. And not let sin reign over us and be our master. Christianity is about practicing imperfectly and in faith the perfect obedience that we have been credited to us because of our faith in Jesus Christ. We practice by faith the perfect obedience that has already been given to us because of our faith in Jesus Christ. We just so happen to practice it imperfectly. 
But what pleases God is not how perfect we practice. Jesus' obedience already covers that. What pleases God is that we strive to practice at all because we have invisible faith. We don't see him. And I close with this. Jesus standing in front of Thomas. And Thomas, he says, here I am, Thomas. Stick your hands. Stick your fingers in my hands. And, in my, and Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, you believe because you see. But blessed are those who do not see and believe. He's talking about us. We believe with the same faith that we are saved. We behave with the same faith that believes we are saved for his glory and our good. Father, thank you for your word and the reality of your word. And I thank you that your truth isn't true because we believe it. It's true because you said it. And I need that even for myself sometimes. Lord, my my, my emotions, my circumstances don't, they do not declare truth. They may display it, but they are not truth in and of themselves. What's true and who I am to you, whether I feel it or not, is based on what you say in your word. And so, Father, I pray for all my brothers and sisters who can at times, who we can all be discouraged when we fail. And that's proof that the commands are not burdensome. They're not a burden to us. So we want to honor you, but we're discouraged when we fail. Lord, help us to think in the offensive, in the preemptive about our, our relationship to you and not just always looking back after we fail, but help us to, remind, to remember what's the fruit that's going to come out of this. Give us the, the, the willingness to take a second and before we get into that, before we say that thing that we want to say that we should, before we give in to that attitude, Lord, help us to remind, just, just to remember what's the fruit that's going to come out of this. Help us to look ahead to a better reward. You've given us the perfect righteousness of Jesus and declared us not guilty, meaning we're not going to be punished for the sins that we commit. Now help us to faithfully, though imperfectly, live that righteousness out and learn how to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we received for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, <clears throat> thank you, brother. Um, we do have a few questions that have come in, um, and two of them have to do with uh, repentance. So the first one, um, <laughs> the first one, I'm going to add a question to their question. I'm going to add a, a request to their question. Um, so I'm, so first of all, I'm, I'll just get that out the way first. Um, but I'll ask the question. I'm just throwing this out. But can you, when you ask this question, share with people um, how we choose to, like, what books, like, we might give people to read um, and, like, how we might think something's helpful but not, may not necessarily agree with, like, everything that the author is saying. Um, so could you elaborate on that? Because they said that um, they received um, a book called uh, The Grace of Repentance by Sinclair Ferguson. Great. Sinclair Ferguson is a beast. Mm -hmm. and, um, and this was a book that we gave our new members. Yeah. Um, so on page 14, uh, uh, our member recalls 
that the statement is made, repentance is, is a characteristic of the whole life, not an action of a single moment. So he, you know, the, the person who submitted the question recognizes that the author is saying that we must continue to repent as believers and wanted to, obviously you've already spoken to that, but could, mm -hmm. could you speak some more to that? Well, I mean, first of all, Sinclair Ferguson isn't a monster, right? But he's also a human being too. So he's not, you know, just because people write books and they have, they speak with a Scottish accent or whatever, doesn't necessarily mean that what they're saying is different than, or we may even disagree on the, on the verbiage. There's this idea in our culture that if John Piper or someone, Tim Keller or John MacArthur or someone who with a big platform says it, it's infallible. It's just, that's, I, okay. So I think Sinclair Ferguson is a, is a, is a great theologian. But he's not, he's, he's, he's saying the same thing differently than what I'm saying. He's just saying that repentance is a way of life, meaning you have accepted Jesus, now live out that acceptance. I'm focusing specifically on using the word repent as an ongoing, as the ongoing language to a Christian. I don't think the Bible does that for a reason. So he's talking about Repentance as an ideology is basically obeying Jesus's commands. So he's not he's not saying anything different than what I'm saying. I'm specifically zeroing in on the actual word repent, metanoia in the Greek. And, the, and you see the way they repented in the scriptures. Remember, they baptized people that they thought repented. They did not do any acts of obedience when they got when they got baptized, except I believe what you just said. I'm going to live that. So I'm dealing with that reality. What he's talking about is repentance as an ideology, which he is making synonymous with obeying Christ. So we're not it's 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 he's not saying anything different. And, 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 and I'm just saying the actual word is not the language of ongoing obedience in the Bible. And I don't think it's a matter of semantics because the word repent is, is a serious word. What he's saying is, you're walking in a manner of that, which he is calling it repentance. That's really, that's really what, what he's saying. And uh, two people actually had this question. Um, so uh, it also has to do with repentance. Um, is there a difference between repentance and confessing our individual sins um, and asking for forgiveness like John 1.9 instructs us? Yeah, I think there is definitely confession. And this I think I'm so glad you asked this question because I think this is a confusing point. Right. Confession is acknowledging I've done something wrong. Repentance or to you were you to use that word is committing to not do that wrong again. I want to walk in a manner worthy of that. Doesn't mean you won't fall, but just confessing is. So like if I, and I'm going to use a graphic illustration that's not true of my life, but let's just say I'm beating my wife and I just say, hey, I want to apologize for that. I'm sorry. Okay, that's one thing. But if I beat her again later on, it doesn't matter, right? Like even the world understands the concept actions speak louder than words, right? You look at James chapter two. James says, I'll show you my faith by what I do, right? He didn't just say faith in and of itself is nothing. I'm going to show you my faith by what I do. Now, when he's talking about that, he's talking about the obedience part. Obviously, faith in Jesus Christ 
There's nothing we can do. That's why we have faith in him. We can't earn his. So confession is merely I acknowledge that a wrong has occurred. Repentance is I'm going to fight against doing that wrong. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to turn away from that. To, that. to use the language of repentance is the turning away from. This is the way theologians describe it, turning away from sin, turning to God. So I'm going to, and I agree, I'm going to put off and put on, right? You see that in the scripture, put off this, put on this. We talked about this a while ago. You, in the Old Testament, was, most of the Ten Commandments are all don'ts. There's not a lot of put ons, not a lot of do's. Said love your God, right? The rest of them are all like don't do this, don't, you know, oh, honor your mother and father. So that's the fourth commandment, right? That's a, that's a do. The rest of them are don't do this, don't lie, don't cover your neighbors, don't, don't do this, don't, don't work on the Sabbath, don't. All those things are done. In the New Testament, now it's like do. So, so it's not just stop being mad. It's actually be merciful in the process. Be, be gracious. Have joy. It's not just don't complain about your trials. It's like count them as joy because you realize, okay, Lord, you're doing, you're doing something here. That's the, that's the difference. So confession and repentance, I think, are two different things. I can say, hey, this is what I did and it was wrong, and then not do anything about it. And a lot of people get fooled by thinking that because I can acknowledge that I did wrong, that I'm actually committed to not doing that wrong again. I'm trying to turn away from it. Totally different ballgame. Um, This person asks a question. Is there a difference between feeling burdened by God's commands and just feeling like you don't want to do it today. If there is a difference, would you please describe? I think there can be. I don't want to say that there, I think there can be. So I think, listen, I always go back to this because I get encouraged by this. Right? Look at John the Baptist again in Luke 7. This dude was chosen by God. This dude was filled with the spirit at six months in the wounds. You know what I'm saying? This dude baptized Jesus. And then he gets locked up in prison. His circumstances change, and he's probably wondering. I think he's a human being like the rest of us, so he's struggling with the fact that he's locked up. And when the disciples come and say, hey, Jesus brought somebody back from the dead, at that point in time, the first time that that had happened, he was like, go ask him, is he the Messiah or not? Like, it didn't even occur. It, didn't even, it wasn't even like, he brought somebody back from the dead? Like, dead, dead? He was like, man, go ask that dude, is he the Messiah or not? That's a struggle. There are times we struggle and we just don't feel like fighting. The question is, is this a theme in your life? And let me explain to you why. So 1 John 3, 9 says, no one born of God will continue sinning. Right? What he's talking about is that you won't practice sin. Iverson, right? We talk about practice. He's saying we won't practice sinning, meaning... We're not going to just do it and not care about it as if it doesn't matter. No one born of God will be able to live a comfortable life sinning willfully, with willful disobedience. You just won't. If you're born of God, it's going to conflict with the spirit of God in you. That's Galatians 5, 16 and 17. The spirit lusts against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. This so that you do not do what you want to do. All right. That's going to happen in the life of a believer. But if there is a theme where I just don't want to obey God and it keeps going and going and going, that's a problem. That's a problem. And I'm not saying we don't have moments 
where it's a struggle. But I think I would watch out for a lack of reading, a lack of praying, a lack of fellowship, and the lack of wanting to obey God over a period of time. I think you should be concerned. That's different than just, okay, that could be like, man, it's just, it's just too difficult. And then there's a mindset. I just don't, this is just too difficult. I don't really feel like doing this. Like, listen, no one should feel forced to obey God. You should feel like I want to obey God. It doesn't always mean I do it. It doesn't always mean it's easy, but I want to do it. If you feel like I have to obey God and all of that, I think that's a problem. That's a wrong perspective. And that, I think that could be, you could be playing with the commands of burdensome to you. Remember, that's, these are God's words. These aren't my perspective. And, the, and it said, what is the love for, for God? It says, obey his commandments. And his commands are not a burden. So God is saying, from his perspective, loving me means you want to obey me and you're not sitting around complaining about having to do it. If you're complaining about or you feel forced to have to obey God, it's probably because you're not from him. You're not of him. So. This last question um person says, what does it say or show about my relationship with God when I sin, I ask for forgiveness, and I ask God to change me, um, and then I give in to the same sin again? It shows that you are walking in a You're learning how to obey God. You know what it shows? It shows a couple things. First John 2, 1. Little children, I'm writing this to you so you may not sin. But if you sin, if you sin, you have a mediator with the Father, Jesus Christ. You know what it shows? It shows 2 Timothy 2, 13. For if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. It means you've been faithless. And I'm not saying that flippantly, like, yeah, be faithless. Okay. That's not what I mean. But what God understands, it, it, and it, you know what it says? Psalm 103, 10 through 12. For he knows how we are formed, that we are only dust. Says he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For he knows how we are formed, that we are only dust. You know what it says? Hebrews 2.18. For since he was tempted, he can also help those who are tempted. Like God understands that. You didn't get saved because God didn't think you were not going to sin again. You're learning how to fight. I think you have to measure that over time. And there are going to be some areas, listen, there are some areas that I have not returned back to. They're just not even, they're just gone. They're not even a temptation for me no more. There's just certain things that are just gone. But then there's a couple other things that, man, I'm bobbing and weaving. I got to fight this one. Because this one, like, what, what did Darth Vader say when he was right behind Luke Skywalker in Star Wars? What did he say? Oh, oh, the force is strong with this one, right? <laughs> the force is, listen, the sin nature is strong on a couple of them. There's a couple sins that it's like, hey, listen, I ain't going nowhere. You're going to have to, you're going to have to, some, some sins are like Jacob wrestling with God. They ain't getting off. They ain't not there, and, and, and you got to work harder. And I think, let me tell you what I think. I think the Lord allows that, allows that so that we continue to trust him and persevere even though it's not experiencing what we want. I think the Lord, listen, if the Lord, if he only cared about sin, he could have the Holy Spirit's presence in us activate even more of a resistance of it. 
But he gives us, Romans 12, 3, a measure of faith for us to help us fight just enough faith that we need to fight, to trust, to count it joy, to persevere, to be discouraged and keep moving. Think about this. This last thing I'm saying. Every, in the Bible, every story, just about, just about every story of suffering and perseverance are all from the people of God who love God and whom God loves. You do not, the Bible is not a book about all the people whom God destroyed who don't love him. It's always about imperfect people, flawed people, who even make it to the hall of faith. I still, whenever I talk to people, I don't know anyone who says, man, I, I can see why Samson is, in, as a, is an example for us to have faith. Like, what did the Lord put that? Sometimes I'm like, man, I think somebody mistranslated that in the Greek. Samson? I mean, some of those names are like, what? They're, they're the examples of faith? Those would be people that we'd be like, man, I don't know about him. I don't even know if he's saved if he was in our church. And God says, this is a people that you... In, in, in 1 Corinthians verses 4 through 9, here's what God said. Here's what Paul says of him. I am confident of your conversion. I'm confident of your salvation. I'm confident of it. And then 1 Corinthians 1.10, all the way through chapter 15. So 94% of the book of 1 Corinthians is Paul correcting them for their character or lack of it. And he never once says you're not a believer. Even when a dude is having sex with his father's wife, he says, what are y'all doing? Expel that dude. He doesn't say you guys are not believers. What are you doing? He understands that the process of growth, sanctification, is going to be a real process with real people. And all of us are learning how to walk in a manner worthy. We're learning how to live as slaves of righteousness. We're learning how to not let sin have reign over our mortal bodies because we no longer are slaves to sin but slaves to righteousness. That's what you're learning, as all of us are. All right. Let's prepare for communion. Pass the mic. Over these last two weeks, we have, as you know, been in an overview of Romans chapter 6. And the chapter delves into the mechanics of our relationship with God and with sin and highlights the corresponding mentality that we should have. We are told to, in verse 11, consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Being in Christ changes everything about us from God's perspective, beginning with our identity, as we've heard over these last two weeks. In preparation for taking the Lord's Supper this, this, this afternoon, uh, we're going to remind, I'm, I want to remind you of some of what we have received in Christ that comes along with this new identity that is given to believers in Christ. 
2 Corinthians 5, 17 says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. See and see, the new has come. We've passed from death to life. So that second death that Pastor Kurt talked about, everybody's going to die the first death unless Christ returns before we die. Um, But after that, there's a second death that we do not have to die. And those in Christ will not die. And so in, in John 5, 24, Jesus says, truly, I tell you, anyone who hears my words, my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. We also have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Ephesians 1, 3 says, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. We partake. (laughs) Our identity has changed so much that we now partake in the divine nature. 2 Peter 1 Uh, Three and four says his divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness. So we have everything that we need. I didn't even that that wasn't even a focus at first, but my attention is drawn there now. So we have everything that we need to live a life uh, of godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness. Verse four, by these, he has given us great and and. Very, excuse me, by these he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desires. And it is not only our relationship with God that has changed because of this identity, but even our relationship with others has changed as well. So 1 John 3, 14 says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. So all of these things are just evidence of our identity being changed. It's, it's also evidence or, or an illustration of the, um, the two great commandments, to love God with everything, right, and then to love our neighbor as ourselves. So listen to what uh, Romans 6, 4 says. You heard it last week, um, but this just shows us uh, what has happened that we don't see, but we just see the effects of it in our initial repentance and our ongoing lifestyle that's walking in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. 6.4 of Romans says, Therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. And Pastor Kurt says something that I want to highlight uh, here before we get to talking a little bit about the or reading about the sacrifice of Christ. He said we, well, I may have added something to it, but he says something that meant we offer, our, no, he said this, we offer ourselves to God because he offered himself for us. 2 Corinthians 5 21 says, he made the one who did not know sin 
to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Talk about a change identity, that great exchange where Jesus takes or in a sense takes on our identity and dies a death he doesn't deserve to die and exchanges that and says, here's my identity. You live, you embrace that, you live in the good of it, and you will reap the rewards of it as well. Before he went to that cross to offer himself for us, he had one meal with his disciples, one last meal before he went to the garden where he was arrested, and that is the Lord's Supper. In one, one account of it, it says, Jesus says that when you do this, as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. So we walk through some of the, the benefits of our changed identity and some of the things that come as a result of being in Christ. But we, and we want to remember that those things were accomplished because of the sacrifice of Christ. And this meal is illustrative of that giving of his life because the bread or the wafer represents his body, which was broken for us. And when he was with his disciples, according to Mark chapter 14, verse 22, as they were eating, he took bread. He blessed and broke it. He gave it to them and said, take it. This is my body, that body which was broken for us. Let us take and eat now. Verse 23 says, then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. He said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And until that day... We look forward to that day. Remember, Pastor Kurt said that heaven is the culmination of the direction in which we are moving toward right now. As we take communion, we partake of it this day as a precursor to the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is recorded in, in, in the book of Revelation that will happen after the last day. So we will drink it with Christ. But he says that his blood, which is represented by the, what they drank, that it was for a covenant which is poured out for many. And we are part of that many that he envisioned. So let us drink in remembrance of what Christ has done for us, shedding his blood for us. And let us close by praying. There are words that, 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 that regardless of the breadth of one's vocabulary, regardless of how talkative one is or how expressive they are, Lord, it is impossible to thank you enough for all that you have done for us. Lord, thank you for the ability to grow in understanding the profundity of 
what you've done. But that only shows that there is, ought to be more praise. There ought to be more gratitude. There ought to be more everything that can possibly be done to thank you. For you didn't just stamp us and say forgiven and that's it. You allow us to participate and partake of the divine nature. You transferred us from death to life. You, as some of us were able to reminisce even during the sermon, you have brought us a long way. And yet, I'm sure, there is much further that we have to go. But we will get there because of you. Thank you for being in you, Jesus. Thank you, Father, for your plan that was a shock to your adversary and should be a shock even to us because it's not like we've done anything to deserve, but because of grace, we've just received an invitation and a gift, and we get so much from a gift, something we have not earned, but just was lavishly extended to us. So, Father, I pray that you would help us even as we read your word and as we hear your word, may we be like the disciples who were walking and on that road to Emmaus. Lord, may our hearts burn within us because we are engaging with you and our understanding of your word as it is being opened up. May it stir our hearts that we would appreciate you even more and love you even more. And may your commands never be burdensome to us because of the love that you've placed in us in response to our interaction with you. Father, we ask you these things in Jesus' name. I ask you that you would bless our week, bless those we interact with. And Lord, we ask you for your blessing so that we in turn may be a blessing. In Jesus' name we pray. And we thank you. Amen, amen, and amen. Don't forget to pray for one another. And don't forget to go to D group this week. God bless you and have a good one. And it's nice for me to be back in church.